So if you have been around Christianity for a while, if you've talked to people at work, you have probably met with the question at some point or time of, why would a good God allow evil to exist? Right? You probably, I've encountered that, you probably have as well. Why does God allow pain? Why are there wars? Why do people get sick? How could a good God allow these things to take place? Why is everything messed up? Why do people get cancer? Why do marriages break down? Why do people do all manner of evil to one another? Why does it hurt so much when loved ones die? Because, friends, we live in a fallen world. And a fallen world has pain, and a fallen world has suffering. But why does this exist? This morning, this message matters to you because without a firm understanding of the fall, the fall of man, Life will not make sense, but also God's grace will not make sense. So this morning, we're going to jump right into the narrative. We're going to jump right into the passage, and if you'd grab your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, we will get to learning on why things are so messed up. Genesis chapter 3, but I'm actually going to start in verse 25 of chapter 2. So as you're turning there, so far we have learned about the the creation story and how man and women uh, came to be, how the earth came to be, how the universe came to be, and uh, we have looked at different elements of worldview. And the last thing we saw last week is that both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Then we get to chapter 3 where we read, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will certainly not die, said the serpent to the woman. In fact, God knows when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw the tree was good for food and delighted to look at it, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. So the Lord called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he said, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, The the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit, fruit from the tree, so I and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly, 
and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with pain, full effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. He said to the man, because you have listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground. Since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. This is the word of the Lord. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you have given us the Bible that we might understand sin and, and rebellion and where we come from and that we might understand grace more clearly. God, help us now to understand. God, give me wisdom even now as I preach. Guide my mouth and guard ears, God. We pray that your truth would remain in everyone's heart as they leave from this place. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. In this passage, we see that because of Adam's disobedience, sin entered the world. Sin has its foundations in doubting God's word. Sin is disobeying God's word, and sin brings consequences. The first thing we see is that sin has its foundation in doubting God's word, and second, we'll see that sin is disobeying God's word, and lastly, that sin brings consequences. Now, as we examine the first book of the Bible, a foundational book, we are considering the foundations of our worldview. What is a worldview? A worldview is the lens through which you make sense of the world around you. Like if we leave from here today and you go to, out to eat, if you go down to Ocean View or if you go out to the landing and, and you witness a crime, if you witness someone steal someone else's wallet, you know, beat them over the head and take their wallet, you don't have to sit and think for a minute and say, all right, how should I process this event? Because you already have a lens to see, well, that's wrong. That person hurt that person. That person committed a crime. And our, our worldview is, is, is the lens through which we interpret data and situations and relationships and all of the things we are confronted with each day. And there are five major elements to everyone's worldview. Everyone has a worldview, and everyone has to answer these five questions. And as we have looked at these first two chapters of Genesis, we have turned it different ways to see the foundations of these five questions that I'm about to say in the first two chapters of Genesis. And the first one is, who is God? Who is God? Is there a God? And in the first two chapters, we see that there is a creator, that he's self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. He is all-powerful because he could create the universe, and he's eternal. He does no beginning, and he has no end. And that is the foundational to our worldview, and we find that in the first two chapters of Genesis. But the second thing every worldview has to answer is cosmology. Why is there something instead of nothing? 
And in the past weeks, we have seen that this all-powerful, sovereign God spoke the universe into existence. That's why there's something instead of nothing. Third, anthropology. Who is man? Where does he come from? And in these first two chapters, we have seen that man is the crown of God's creation. He is unlike any of the other creatures because he bears the image of God, the creator, the one who created everything. Man bears that being's image. Fourth, epistemology. How do we know? How do we learn? How, how, how do we gather the information that we have? Because we are created in God's image, we see that we have a conscience. We have the ability to reason. But we also see we have direct instruction from our Creator. We're going to talk about that a lot today. Adam has this direct instruction from God, but he also has a cognitive ability to think and to process and to reason and to answer questions. And finally, the fifth thing is ethics. Are there boundaries of conduct for humanity? Are there some things we can or cannot do? Why can't I just go take someone's wallet? Well, why can't I just do what I want to do? Why can't I cheat on a test if it gives me a, a, a leg up on finishing my degree? And we see in the first two chapters of Genesis that Adam is given both tasks and conduct restrictions. You're supposed to be doing these things. Don't do these things. There are ethical boundaries for man. And we see all these foundational elements in the first two chapters. And so now we're off and running. Now we're off in Genesis, and we're going to like, just like we always do, we're going to walk through books of the Bible, and we're going to think about these five elements as we go along, like a normal sermon series, probably for as long as we go through sermon series. And today we see that because of Adam's disobedience, sin and its consequences enter God's good creation. Now, what is sin? We think we know what sin is, but when you talk to people, some people think sin is just something icky, like something we want to kind of avoid, or maybe sin is just bad choices. But what is sin biblically? Because we're thinking of our worldview, we need that foundation. Well, sin is a lack of conformity to the instruction of God in act in habit, in attitude, in disposition, in motivation. It is a lack of conformity to God's instruction. Right? So Jesus, we see this, Jesus tells us, well, yeah, we shouldn't murder anybody. We see that in the, in the Ten Commandments. I should not, you know, take my hunting rifle and shoot someone. But Jesus says you shouldn't even think about doing it. If, I, if I'm that angry with someone in, the, in my mind, I've already committed the deed. Now, there are degrees in, you know, where you go, but Sin is thinking about hurting someone. Sin is thinking about being with a woman that is not your wife. It is a lack of conformity to what God has told us to do. So how does worldviews recognize evil if they're not the Christian worldview? Like, how does a secular person process it? Well, someone with a modern worldview is going to dismiss the idea of sin altogether, and they're going to have optimism on progress. Well, yeah, you know, people used to do crazy stuff back in the day, but we're progressing, we're learning, we're, we're getting new technology. That's how they're going to think of it. Postmodernity, with its moral relativism, is going to dismiss the entire idea of sin. They're going to argue that every group is basically good, and really we just need to understand one another better. Even in our culture, we seek to reduce sin to a social construct and, and to cure anything that may or may not be wrong with self-help and therapy. I don't know about you guys, but I watch YouTube, and how many commercials have you endured about online therapy in the last couple years? I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Maybe they think I need therapy, but I get them all the time that I need to do online therapy, or like on Facebook, 
and these things pop up, and there's a guy that's all red and angry, and there's like four little compartments of this meme, and by the end of it, he's fine, and the reason he's fine is because he's doing online therapy. Self-help and therapy have become the salvation man seeks in our society. They may not call it sin, but there's this thing that they know they need to get away from, and it's found in these man-made techniques. And I mentioned that here at the beginning because as we think about this passage, I want you to see that arrogance is doing things ourself. It's doing things our way. And it is very reason for the fall of man. So the first thing we see in this passage is that sin has its foundations in doubting God's Word. In the beginning, everything is what? It's very good. God looks at it and He says, this is all very good. Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed together. We saw that in the last part of chapter 2. Things are going very well. And then the one who is a murderer from the beginning slithers up. Look with me at verses 1-5. through Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it, or you will die. No. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows when you eat, your eyes will become open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. And the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The serpent is the most cunning. Some translations say the most crafty of all the animals. He's he's more than a random animal in this story. He's more than just a snake, though. We know from here and from other places in Scripture We know that the serpent here is that ancient serpent, the deceiver, Satan. It is the devil incarnate, the presence of Satan here in the garden. And Eve's first mistake is that she stops to listen to him. Her first mistake is that she even even stopped what she was doing to listen to what the serpent had to say. She was willing to hear what the serpent had to say. And the serpent knew If I need to get it at him, how am I going to do it? I'm going to go through his wife. Thomas Watson says Satan is an expert soldier, looking for holes in an enemy's defenses. Satan knew that to attack the weaker vessel, knowing that if he prevailed with Eve, that she would easily draw her husband into his snare. So Satan goes after Eve first. doesn't go after Adam. The devil knew that the best way to get to Adam, the representative of all mankind, was through his wife. You know, in the first few years of my ministry, there were a few people who tried this tactic. Maybe you've had it as well. There was even someone who who prayed to get at me in a women's prayer meeting, and my wife came home in tears. They wanted to get at me through my wife, but they didn't invent that, did they? It's a successful tactic, and it was successful in the garden. 
Satan casts doubt on God's instruction. Casts doubt on if God is good or not. Did God really say? That's where he starts. He goes to the woman. He starts to cast doubt. Are you sure you cannot eat? That's the first step. Questioning God's word. But afterwards, God's word's question, we see that Eve misrepresents God's word. What does she say? She says, no, no, no. We can't even touch the tree. Now, some people have said that was an innocent comment. She, she was you know, innocent in that. She wasn't trying to malign God's word. Some other people have said, well, surmise, maybe, maybe Adam said, you know what? We're not supposed to eat of that. Don't even touch it. So it was Adam that he kind of went a step further. Like he fenced God's word. Here's God's word. He fenced it further. But whatever the reason, what we see here is that God's word was misrepresented. So first, God's word is doubted. Then it's misrepresented. Satan starts with something subtle, but then he outright contradicts God. The serpent gets bold, and he open refutes God's word, and he tells the woman, don't worry. Relax. You've got nothing to worry about. He gives her three counterclaims. He says, you will not die. You will have your eyes opened, and you will gain what belongs to God. So he starts subtly, and then he's bold. You will not die. You'll have your eyes open. You're going to gain what belongs to God. His argument here is to cast doubt on not only God's word, but God himself. He says, God's trying to hold you back, Eve. You can live your best life if you don't follow his instruction. Just do what you know, what I'm telling you. God is not good. God is selfish. You should have this. You deserve it. We live in a world with people grasping for what they think they deserve. Doubt was cast. Rebellion followed. The second thing we see is that sin comes through disobeying God's word. Look with me at verses 6 and 7. The woman saw the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of his fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So the woman gives in to the devil, gives in to what he's saying. She looks at the fruit, and it's desirable, and she wants it, so she takes it, and she eats it. Adam didn't do anything. He's supposed to protect the garden. He's supposed to protect his wife. He stands there and does nothing. Then Adam takes and eats the fruit that his wife gave him. And what do we read then? Look at the verse. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. That's important. Their eyes weren't opened until Adam ate. Now this narrative at times has been arduous, right? Like as I'm reading through the first and second chapters, if you notice, like I get stumbled. I'm not a very good reader and I'm kind of a goofball anyhow, so I stumble. But these verses are a lot harder, right? Because they're very specific. Then there was morning. Then there was evening. Then there was morning. Then there was evening. It's very specific. And what we see here is it does not say Eve ate and then her eyes were open. Then she gave some to Adam and Adam ate and then his eyes were opened. Their eyes were not opened until Adam ate. I want you to just remember that. We're going to talk about it again in a minute. As soon as Adam ate the fruit, immediately they became aware. Their eyes were open and they became naked. They realized they were naked. 
So they made fig leaf clothing for themselves, which is the biggest leaf there in the region. Our first parents, friends, exchanged innocence, innocence for embarrassing knowledge of nakedness. Instead of dependence on God, the one who created them, the good God that had given them all the trees in the garden except one, instead of depending on him, they sought to be like him. They chose disobedience. Friends, you want to know why the world is messed up? You want to know why there is, there is pain and sickness and cancer? You want to know why there are disagreements? Because our original parents sought independence from God instead of dependence on Him. They chose rebellion. And we know in the Bible, rebellion never ends well. Look at Jonah. Disobeying God's instruction never, ever ends well. You may not end up in the belly of a whale, but heartache will follow. Heartache will follow. Then the third thing we see here is that first, the, the serpent spoke only of what would, gain, would be gained, but he failed to speak of what would be lost. And the third thing we see is that sin brings consequences. Look at me at verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time in the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So that the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, Adam saying, and he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, we'll get to that in a minute. But first, let's talk about the fact that Adam was called to by God. God would walk with Adam. And we see in Genesis to walk with God is a sign of righteousness, right? Like Enoch, he walked with God. Noah walked with God. Adam or Abraham walked with God, and we see that God comes to walk with Adam in the cool of the day, the breezy part of the day, the ruach of the day. And he calls out to the man, where are you? But again, I want you to notice, who does God call for? He doesn't call out to them. He doesn't call out to Adam and Eve. He calls out for Adam, the representative. And again, a point to fact, uh, an important fact to note. And Adam responds that he was naked, so he hid. And God says, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I specifically told you? Adam, don't eat from that tree. Did you eat from that tree? Did you, did you follow my instruction or did you not? Now, he already knew. He knew the commandment was broken. But we read that he asks. And what does Adam say? Well, he owns his mistake, right? He says, like, I am the representative of man. I am the one that you breathe life into, and I have, I have failed to keep your instruction, God. Well, no. He says, it's that woman you gave me. It's her fault, right? right? It's her fault. You gave me this woman, and she caused me to sin. And Eve says, it's not me. It's the snake's fault. Right? Like, so we see everybody pointing at everybody. If you do not believe in an inherited sin nature, like if original sin is, a, is something you struggle with, like just look right here. 
Like if you think that you naturally were born with like a, a tendency to own your mistakes, like look at this passage. Do you know how many times I've met with someone over a sin issue and they say, yep, I did that? Sadly, not very many, even among those who have the Spirit of God within them. Generally, someone says, it's another person is the issue. It's my wife. She's the reason that I had to go and do that thing. It's my kids. They just don't listen, and it made me mad, and it's not my fault. It's my kids' fault. It's my situation. You don't realize what I'm going through. Sometimes I meet with people, and I found out, I mean, if you, if you don't realize how sinful you are, become a pastor, because it's amazing how many people will point back that it's my fault that the reason they did something crazy. Because it's in our nature to blame someone else. But James 1.13 reminds us that we are responsible for our rebellion. The blame game starts right here in the garden. Adam tells Eve that Eve's the problem. And think about that for a minute, right? Like just a couple of verses ago, we see in the narrative that Adam responds with joy to Eve. Finally, this is one of my flesh. This is one like me. He's responding with joy, but very quickly it's, God, it's this woman you gave me. She's the reason for our downfall. And so God pronounces judgment on the rebellious. Look with me at verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. And you will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. So God says to the servant, what, three things. You're going to crawl on your belly. You're going to eat dust. right? Like that's specific. He, You tempted the woman to eat the fruit. Guess what? You're going to eat dust. You're going to crawl on your belly. You're going to eat dust. And ultimately, you're going to be destroyed by the seed of the woman. Satan, that ancient serpent, the deceiver, will be crushed by a descendant of Eve. This right here is what's known as the proto-evangelium, right? That's a big word. Get our word evangelism, right, from evangelium, you get that? Proto, the prototype of the gospel. This is, this is Christmas in Genesis chapter 3, right? This is the first sign we get uh, of a coming Savior. And you say it talks about a seed, not a he. Look at, there's two characters here. There's a, there's a serpent, right, and there's a seed, but notice what it says about the seed. It does not say, and it will crush your head. It says he, a person. The seed will strike the snake's head, and the snake will strike the seed's heel. The Hebrew word for strike here, too, can be translated bruised or crushed. I like to say crushed. Some, uh, some of the things I, you, you will read will talk about crushed. Uh, if you're reading ESV, it's bruised. If you're reading CSV, it's strike. But, but what we see here is there are parallel actions between the seed and the serpent, but different locations. To crush a heel is less severe than a head, but to crush a head is fatal. And we read here early on, all right, ancient serpent, you will crush the seed of the woman's heel, but this seed one day will crush your head. Then we see what happens to the woman. Look at verse 16. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. 
Your desire will be for his husband, yet he will rule over you. So the penalty of the woman impacts her two primary roles. Right? I mean, that, that's, you talk about worldview, that's not a popular one in our culture, but biblically, the, the, her, her punishment impacts her two primary roles, marriage and childbearing. Marriage and childbearing. First, we read that the woman's pain will be increased by childbirth. But guess what? There's grace in this as well, because she's going to live to have children. Remember, they said, when you eat of this, you will surely die. But what we see here is God saying, you know what, You're gonna, your labor pains will be increased. But that means that she's going to be around to have kids. Look at verse 20 down real quick. It's kinda, it seems like it's stuck in. It's God's word, so it's not just stuck in, but it almost appears there. In 20, we see that the man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. So instead of instant death, we find that Eve will be the mother of all living. Her name Eve in Hebrew means living. In the Greek word, it's zoe, which means life. Eve will be the mother of all living, but her childbirth, bearing children, will now be toil. But the second thing we see is that her relationship with her husband is going to be tainted. She acted independently of him by taking the fruit, by listening to the serpent, even though he was there and is responsible. She still acted independently of him, and because of that, her desire will be for her husband, but he will rule. And there's a couple of different takes on that, but I believe the most faithful, and I believe what it's saying here, is that the woman will desire the control in the relationship, but her husband will still rule. She will be denied. Now, the man was always designed to lead, but the word rule now here is what's being used. I mean, we even see this in Adam's naming of Eve. Like he called her, she will be Ishaw because she comes from Ish. She will be called woman because she comes from man. And now we see after the fall, Adam is saying he's naming his wife. She will be called Eve. Another exercise of his headship before and after the fall. But the final word from God is directed to Adam. Look with me at verses 17 through 21. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust and you will return to dust. Adam listened to his wife and not God. He disobeyed. Adam was charged with cultivating and watching over the garden. Now he will toil in the dirt. The ground will be cursed because of him. The ground is cursed and will produce thorns for man. And it's through toil, only toil, that he will produce substance for his family. Sustenance. That is his role. His role is to guard and to watch over and to provide for his family. And he will now do it through toil. Why do we struggle with work? The fall. And then finally, he receives a penalty of death. You will go back to the ground that you are called to watch over. You are from the ground. You will go back to the ground. 
And then we see in, the, in verse 21, the Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. So we see that, again, just as, as Eve was going to have children, which is a sign of grace. Here we see that the, the, both the couple are not killed outright, as God could have justly done. Instead, there's a stay of sentence. And not only that, God slaughters animals and makes clothing for Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness. It shows us both the high price of sin and the grace of God. Those animals died because of their sin, but God was gracious and did not kill our first parents. But the blame for all of this, friends, the blame for it all, lies with Adam. You know, sometimes people will joke in the church and stuff and be like, well, you know, the women, they're the blame for all this Eve. No, no, no. It only looks like that on the surface. Adam is to blame for the fall. He is the representative. Paul is clear on this. Adam was not misled, 1 Timothy 2.14. Eve was misled, but Adam knew his orders. Adam had his instruction. Adam was not lured. Adam was not deceived. Jewish tradition, even in 4th Ezra, which is not a biblical book, but we see that they place the blame squarely on Adam. The Bible does not say that Adam and Eve were opened until after Adam ate the fruit. When God comes to the garden, he doesn't call out for Adam and Eve. He's looking for the man. You're the representative. Paul writes in Romans 5 that sin entered the world through Adam. He says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people. Just think about that sentence. It doesn't say sin entered the world through Eve. It doesn't say sin to the world through Adam and Eve. It said one man through Adam, and death came through sin, and it spread to all of us. So the next time you're around a church parking lot and someone says, well, you know, if it wasn't for women, we wouldn't be in this shape, you can say, nah, uh uh-uh, it wasn't for Adam. Adam is the man's representative. And he represents not just himself, not just Eve, but all humanity. Think of this. We'll talk about it next week when we talk of the repercussions of sin, but Adam and Eve are barred from the garden, right? And God places angels there with flaming swords, which just as a dude and as a kid, when I'd hear that, I'm like, what does a flaming sword look like? That sounds really cool. That's a total side note. But they're barred from the garden. But then they have kids. Well, the kids got to go back into the garden, right? Because they didn't do the sin. No. No. They inherited their father's rebellion. They too have a sin nature through their father Adam, just as Paul says, through all the world receives a nature of sin through this one man. Adam's actions, his disobedience have consequences for his descendants because he is the representative. And his guilt and his sin are transmitted to his descendants. Friend, if we go back to our our definition here, sin is a lack of conformity to the instruction of God in act, habit, attitude, disposition, and motivation. Original sin is the term that we use that means that from the fall, from Adam's fall, from the fall of man, all human beings are marked with sin from birth. Original sin means that from the fall, 
all of us inherit a sin nature. In sin, in my mother's womb, was I made. This inner sinfulness is the root of our actual sins because we are fallen. So you ask, why do I struggle with sin? Why do I do these things? Original sin. It's in our nature, our fallen nature. And it derives from our first father, Adam. It's what Jonathan Edwards calls extended pollution. Extended pollution. We are polluted by extension from our first father. Original sin means that all people are corrupted by Adam's sin through natural generation. Like blowing out a lone candle in a dark room when Adam fell, darkness descended on us all, even though we weren't born. Which brings us to another word we have to know, and it's total depravity. Total depravity. So sin is disobedience of God's word. That's an easy definition. Original sin is that sinful nature that marks us from the fall. Total depravity means there is no part of our existence that is untouched by sin. Not any part of us that is untouched by sin. Total depravity does not mean that we are as sinful as we can be. That's what people sometimes wrongly attribute to it. It does not mean that I am the most sinful that I could possibly be right now. It means that there is no part of my existence that is untouched, that's not affected or infected. But all of my faculties are polluted. Since the fall, all of us are born with a fountain of sin in our heart that pours forth like some sort of acid or oil and taints every part of our being. Every part of us is stained. So we're talking about worldview. How should we think? How should we think about sin and original sin and total depravity and the fall in Adam and Eve? Well, I have three things that we must understand. Three things we must understand. First, understand that sin is total. Total depravity. Depravity is another word for sin. Depravity darkens our minds. Every part of us, it darkens our mind. The noetic effects of sin, we talk about that. Our intellects are fallen. We need to know that for our epistemology. We talked about that a few weeks ago, how we think, how we know, how we gather information. Our sins, our, our minds are fallen by sin. Confusion, misunderstanding, learning disabilities, all of those things come from rebellion. Ever since Adam's eyes were opened, none of us can see clearly. Right? Because of original sin, I struggled to understand calculus. Right? If they would have had calculus in Adam's day, his mind would have been able to grasp the concepts pre-fall with no problem. But because of sin, we have darkened minds. Depravity defiles our heart. Jeremiah 17.9 says this, when it says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Since the fall, our hearts are fallen and full of lusts and desires and sin. That's why when people say, well, I just got to follow my heart, we should, like Vodi Bakum, yell back, no, don't follow your heart. Your heart is filled with sin and fallen. Follow God's word. Depravity darkens our mind. Depravity defiles our hearts. Depravity corrupts our wills. 
Our wills are at the center of rebellion. Thomas Watson, again, I been reading a lot of Watson this week, so you're going to get a few quotes from him, but Thomas Watson says, our wills are like iron sinew that refuse to bend to God's will. So I thought was so, there's no way I could improve upon that, so I'm just going to quote him. Our fallen wills are like iron sinew that refuse to bend to God's will. Prior to the fall, Adam had free will. Prior to sin, Adam had free will. He was free to love God. He was free to serve God. He had liberty to freely serve God. Post-fall, we have a will. We have a faculty of choosing, but our will is not free. It is fallen. Our wills go after what we want. Our wills go after the things of the world. Our fallen wills are a slave to sin. And a fallen man cannot come to God unless God sovereignly changes that will. Depravity has corrupted it. And we need God's intervention. So depravity darkens our mind. Depravity defiles our hearts. Depravity corrupts our wills. And depravity distorts our affections. We set our affections on the wrong things. The fall of man sets our affections on things and and worships the creation rather than the creator, as Paul tells us in Romans. Depravity means that I go after things that I think are good for me, but they're not. I I, I worship myself. I want pride. I want comfort. I want success. I want want everyone to worship me. I want want all of these things that that are against God and, and hurt me, but my affections are like, man, that's what I need. That's what I want. That's what I love. That's what I'm going to set my heart on. That which is nauseous and hurtful to me. Our affections are fallen and we reject holiness. We reject the pursuit of holiness in our fallen state. And finally, depravity infects our bodies. Because of original sin, we have to return to the dust. Our bodies decay and we die because death came through sin. So why do we we, we get, why, do, why does a child get cancer and die? Why is God not good and would allow that to happen? Because sin entered the world, because we as mankind rebelled together with our first father. Understand that total depravity is a part of our existence. But second, understand that sin is a part of our existence even after conversion. So when we get saved and and when we come to Christ, we get new hearts and God's Spirit comes to to dwell within us. And we have new minds and now the, the, the effects of the fall start to reverse. And we start to see clearly and we start to think clearly and we start to love God. But we never quite get away from sin. Though God's grace in Christ subdues the sin in the life of a Christian, it is not totally removed. Again, Thomas Watson couldn't word it any better than him. He says, Though the Spirit be weakening and hewing down sin in the godly, the stump of original sin is left. The stump, right? So that does not mean full tree, but there is still going to be a stump in the life of the believer. Romans 11 tells us that true believers are dead to the guilt of sin, they are dead to the power of sin, they are dead to the love of sin, yet will struggle with sin. The illustration I've used, I stole it from somebody else, and I've used it so many times now, I can't remember who I stole it with, but it's a good one, but I didn't come up with it. It's that prior to 
the conversion, our conversion, we are going this way. We are going where our affections want. We are going straight to sin and the devil and, 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 and pleasing ourselves. And then when the Lord converts us and we repent and we turn, wait, got to go back here. Here we are walking arm in arm with our sin and we are doing what we want. But when we are converted, we turn and now we desire God, even in a, in a small way, and we're going towards holiness, but we're still arm in arm with our sin. He's going that way. We're going this way. And he's pulling us back, but we're fighting against our sin. The Holy Spirit is working in our lives, and we're going a new direction. If we still love our sin, we should take pause to see if we are in Christ. We should hate our sin, but we should know there's still going to be a stump of it there until glorification when we are with God. Third, understand that we must follow God's word. We must follow God's word. How did this all start? Thousands of years ago. Questioning God's word. And then the snowball started down the hill. When we look at the beginning of the chapter, this is what we see. Four things. First, God's word is doubted. Second, God's word is misrepresented. Third, God's word is blatantly contradicted. And fourth, God's word is ignored. It's just ignored outright. Now, how does that work in our lives? I think it works the same way. Right? So you take any doctrine, marriage, bearing false witness, lust, drunkenness, whatever you got, adultery, <clears throat> starts out this way. Did God really say we have to do that in every situation? I mean, aren't there some situations where maybe it's okay? And the second thing we do is we get a really bad exegesis. We go and we try and find one verse that we think will confirm what we're doing. And we pull it out of context. And we build a whole thing around that. And we say, look, this, look at this. And then the third thing we say is, well, God would want me to be happy. God wants me to, God wants me to be happy. And then we just go and do what we want, number four. I'll give you an example, marriage. Does God say I really have to love this woman in every situation? I didn't look up a passage that might could be misconstrued, but you guys, if you've been around the church, you know people misconstrue the Bible. And then I walk into a pastor's office and I say, like, Pastor, I got it, I got it, but you don't know my wife. And God wants me to be happy. And then he tells me, don't do this thing, God wants you to be holy. And I say, yeah, well, whatever, I'm going to go do what I want. I'll just go to the next church. The next pastor will believe me. I'll work people in around me, and I will be good until I get to another doctrine, maybe adultery or lying or cheating on my taxes or whatever. And I'll bounce around, and I'll continue to do what started in the garden with the devil. Friends, we must follow God's word, not our hearts, not our fallen minds, not our fallen affections, but we must do what God says because as the kids tell us this morning in the in equipping hour, because God is good, he always desires what is best for his children. And staying in a marriage where maybe you can't stand to look at that slug anymore, and I'm talking about my wife, I'm talking about a guy, whoever, she's in the nursery, so please don't go tell her I said that, like that way. But you know what I mean? yes. There are times when I am unlovable and Sarah has to make herself love me. 
There are some times, there's never a time when I don't love her. I'm not going to step in that. But there are times even in the church, right? As my mentor said to the church one time, and it was refreshing and shocking at the same time, sometimes there's times you're going to have to make yourself love me. But then there's sometimes I'm going to have to make myself love you. Because we follow God's word. We are committed to our fellowship. We are committed to our marriages. We don't just follow our hearts and do what feels right. At least we're not supposed to. Modernity claims that ethics are just a social construct. Friends, biblical ethics matter. Postmodernity says everything's relative and it's all your perception and you can do whatever you want if you see it that way and you say it that way. No, friends, truth matters. Our ethics, our epistemology, we go to God's Word. Because sin started with doubting God's words. And Christians, friends, those who have God's Spirit within us, we are to embrace His instruction. Today we read that because of Adam's disobedience, because he rejected God's instruction, sin and its consequences entered the world. And that blame is placed with Adam in this passage, because he is man's representative. But there's another representative. We mentioned Romans 5, it goes further. In Romans 5 we see, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, in this way death spreads to all people. For if by one man's trespass many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace in one man, Jesus Christ? And the gift is not like the one man's sin, Because from one sin came judgment resulting in condemnation, but from many trespasses came the gift resulting in justification. If by the one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, how much more would those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ? We have two representatives here. We have Adam. We have Christ. Either you're in Adam, or you're in Christ. I forget which Puritan it was, but I heard one of the Puritans said, if we think about these two representatives as giants, you are either hanging on hooks from one of their belts. Either you're hanging on hooks from the belt of Adam, or the belt of Jesus, the last Adam. The first Adam disobeyed. The second Adam perfectly obeyed. The first Adam ate from the tree. The second Adam hung on a tree. The first Adam Adam had to have animals killed to cover his shame. The second one died to cover our sin, our shame, our guilt. The first one brought thorns into the world, but the second one wore the thorns that the first brought. The first one had angels bar the way to the garden. To, to, to walking with God. The second one, his act, rent the curtain that barred us from coming into the presence of God and guess what was on that curtain? Just as a side note. Cherubim, angels. The first Adam gave way to the ancient serpent. The second one ignored him, refuted him with God's word and crush the serpent. Friends, either you are in Adam, or you are in Christ. 
Either you belong to Adam or you belong to Christ. Our fallen nature is not true humanity. This is for our anthropology, right? Sometimes people think sin is a part of the human existence. Friends, it's not. It's not. It's our fallen experience, but it is not what God designed. True humanity is Christ. True humanity is the Son that is faithful to the Father. And that original sin that we all inherit is only overcome by the work of Christ. Jesus Christ, eternally existent, God's Son, came and walked that perfect life, perfectly obedient, denying the devil's claims, refuting him with Scripture, teaching and, and, and preaching and, and, and healing and showing that he is God incarnate. I mean, just think about the fact that in, in Judaism, if you have leprosy and I go and touch you, I just became unclean. But when Christ touched lepers, they became clean. And this Christ was crucified as our representative for all of those who would call upon his name and call him Lord and would repent and turn to him. He was crucified as their representative, laid in a tomb, and after on the third day came out fully alive, fully God, fully man, ascended to the right hand of the Father. And we are called, friends, we are called to turn to him. We are called to repent and believe this gospel. We, 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 we are called uh, as all people to lay aside serving ourselves, to lay aside pleasing ourselves, to lay aside following our, our wills, and to turn to Christ. And if you have not, you are to repent and believe the gospel now. I don't have to give an invitation. I don't have to ask you to walk down front. You don't have to fill out a card. But right where you're at right now, flee to Christ. Believe this gospel be saved from the wrath that is to come. Because God in His mercy sent His only Son that we might be reconciled to Him, that those flaming swords might be brought up, the, the ancient serpent's head might be crushed. And that is what we celebrate today in the Lord's Supper. Today we are going to celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ laid down His life for the elect that he laid down his life for his bride and for those who would call him Lord. So I'm going to ask the men who have been asked to serve to come forward. And this morning, if you have trusted in Christ, if you have trusted him as your Lord and your Savior and, 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 and been baptized in obedience to that, then we invite you to join with us as we celebrate this morning. If you have not, though, we ask you to allow the elements to pass. Allow that, just allow them to go past. It's okay, but I pray that you observe those who do partake because by their act, they are saying, I'm trusting in Christ and Christ alone for my justification. Also, we have to, we have to heed the, the warning of Scripture when Paul says, if there is a sin in your life, if there is something unrepented, if you have a disagreement with a brother or sister in Christ, that it is better for you to abstain and to make that relationship right or to repent of that sin. And so if you have this unrepentant sin in your life, please just allow the elements to pass. But for those of us who are in Christ, I pray that you would remember what the Lord has done for us here. Let me pray. God, you are so good. God, you are merciful beyond any words that could come from someone like me. God, that you would send your only son to die for us, for a worm like me, 
for garbage like me, someone who is a born rebel, and as soon as he is able, actively rebels against you, God, we are in awe. And Father, we pray that as we take this supper, that each of us would remember your grace and your mercy. We pray in his name. Amen. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's eat.